Please turn with me to Galatians chapter 4 as we continue our look in the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 4 as we will be looking at the first seven verses of this chapter. Before we do that, let's go again to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help as we open his word. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we pray that we would see that we are not simply opening a book that we might study it in an academic way or that we might study it to see a way that we might do something differently and have a better life. But we are opening a book that contains the words of our Creator and our Redeemer. And these words are not just simply words on a page, but these are the words of life. In fact, these words have the power to transform. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do just that. Even as we are only going to read seven verses this morning, we that's that's more than enough to show where we fall short. And so, Lord, please transform us. By the renewing of our minds as we read your word and we pray this in your name. Amen. As I read through this passage this week, there's this idea of of managing, of one group being managed by something. And it made me think of this time of year that we're having at school right now, which is scheduling. I like the time of year where we schedule for next year. Uh, because it gets to make, you know, I'm pretty invested in that as a teacher because I want to make sure that students get to the right class, what their goals are and all that sort of thing. It's just fun for me to think about. And they start doing this as far as the high school is concerned. They even start doing this over in the eighth grade, which they did that this week too. And a lot of, for eighth graders, a lot of them have only even been to the high school maybe once or twice. And so it's a really big deal. There's a lot of unknowns. We have to manage that process for them, as it were. We really have to guide them and hold their hands. But as they get older, for instance, like the juniors who scheduled this year, they don't really need that. As they no longer need someone like me or others to manage that scheduling process for them. Most of the unknowns of high school are completely gone. They know everything there is to know, or at least they think they do. So in our text today, We're going to be talking about this kind of management, whereas the law served as a kind of administrator or trustee for the children of God until the time that Jesus came. As we've been going through the book of Galatians, not only have we been given a lesson in the simplicity of the gospel, the simplicity meaning just one thing, right? It's very simple, but we've also seen the necessity of of the law in leading us to Jesus. In Galatians 4, we see a different role of the law, but again, it's going to help us to broaden our understanding of its purpose. Christians are quick to swing from one extreme to the other when it comes to the law, either following it so much so that we think it saves us or not following it at all because we're already saved. We have those two extremes. But as we see in the New Testament over and over, 
The law and the gospel are both something that the believer should love and cherish for different reasons. We'll also see the person and the work of Christ spelled out very clearly for us as, as he came as a fulfillment of the law, the redeemer of his people. We see that we saw the passage that we read together, Isaiah 9 today, again, very clearly stating the coming of Christ and his purpose. We see a very similar passage like that today in Galatians 4. Because of this, we are given the right to be called children of God because of the work of Christ. And so as we look at this text, I'm going to consider three main ideas. First, the guarding of the children, then the coming of the Son, and finally, the purpose of His coming. And so with that, let's look together at the text, Galatians chapter 4, starting at verse 1 and reading through verse 7. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Galatians chapter 4, starting at verse 1. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come... God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So last week we looked at the idea of being fully immersed in Christ, so much so that Paul tells us that we have put on Christ, kind of like wrapping up in a giant coat that completely swallows you. We have put on Christ. We are joined to Christ. And because of that union, we too are called Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So as we get into the text today, we have this important caveat given to us, what it means that we are heirs according to the promise and how that relationship works out. Last week, we we brought in the story of the prodigal son from Luke 15, if you remember, and how he took his inheritance and squandered it on wild living in a far off land. And he ended up poor. He ended up eating with the pigs. All of that hard-earned money of the Father was gone in just a few moments of hedonistic pleasure and poor decisions. It would have been nice if the Son had a manager of some kind, someone to tell him how to spend his money, what to spend it on, when to spend it, and so forth. Or better yet, someone to put limits on him, since he was unable to limit himself at all. We do this naturally with our own children, or at least we should, as we help them find safe boundaries for their own conduct, for their financial decisions and so forth as they go into their own life. So as we get into the text today, with that as the backdrop, that we have this grand inheritance given to us because of our union with Christ. And how do we manage it? How do we 
as sinners saved by God, who were once children of wrath, who are now children of God, how do we and how do we handle this great reward? It's important for people who want to go from being free in Christ to being a slave to the law again. People are so attracted by the confines of the law, even as we are in Christ. We so quickly wander away from his rest and freedom and back into slavery, and we want to drag others with us. It is one of the main difficulties of the Christian life. That's exactly what was going on in the Galatian churches with the Judaizers. And Paul helped them to see that they were no longer slaves, but sons and daughters of the king. That brings me to the first point, the guarding of the children. Look with me again, Galatians 4, verses 1 and 2. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different than from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Quite a bit here. In fact, if this was a seminary lecture hall, I could totally see spending most of a day on these two verses. It's just really, really rich. The language is really full here. Good commentaries, if you're into reading commentaries and are just wanting a little bit more here. Calvin's commentaries are always good, of course. And Matthew Henry is another one that gives a more concise look at the text. And both of those guys are free online, and you can't really find much better than either one of them. So if you're into a deeper study of this, both of those guys give a good treatment of this text. But we're just going to look at the main idea today in these two verses. Paul is teasing out more the ideas that he began at the end of chapter 3 and really the last half of chapter 3, the purpose of the law, how we are made heirs of God the Father. And in verse 1, we read that the child of God, though an heir, is no different than a slave, though he is owner of everything. The ESV translates the word here as owner, but the word is actually, if you just look in the original language, it's the same word that you see translated as the word Lord all over the place. And I think the word Lord actually works better to capture the meaning here. It's like we've been talking about it. There's this young person that is needing someone to manage their things. They're going to be future Lord, but they're not able to do it right now. They just don't make good decisions. They need someone to help them along, right? Consider our lives as believers. We are called from the foundations of the earth. We read that in Ephesians chapter 1. So even from the womb, even as we are developing in the womb, we are the elect children of God. As the Father has already made a decision about us long before we would make a decision about Him. So there is a time then for each of us when we are, that we are elect, yet we have not been yet adopted as a son or daughter of God. We have not professed our faith. We have not made a profession of faith in Christ. That is the time that is in view in this passage our lives before we were a believer. Though we were not believers at the time before Christ, we were indeed future heirs, future lords of creation, though we have not yet realized our inheritance. So in that meantime, we needed something to manage us or to be our administrator. And that's exactly what we had in the law. 
verse 2. See that idea. But, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the Father. The word guardian here, we saw it already in the text in chapter 3, but it's a completely different word in the original language, which is why I'm not sure why they chose to use the word guardian twice here. But in earlier in chapter 3, we talked about the pedagogue. He was kind of that disciplinarian for the child. And here we have a completely different word. And the word would be better translated as like an administrator. Someone who is over all of the ways of a person. The word literally means over the ways. So how does that work? Well, it gives us a bit more in verse 3. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. We were slaves to the elementary principles of the world. Chemistry students here will appreciate this because this word here, the elementary principles, is where we get our chemistry word stoichiometry from. If you're a chemistry student, you just love stoichiometry. I can just feel the love coming from the crowd currently. I know a couple of chemistry students in the crowd. The person who came up with this word stoichiometry actually went and used the word that we find here in the Greek text because it literally talks about counting lines. As if you were counting up letters or numbers. The picture here is of a young student literally learning their ABCs. So understand, church, the elementary principles of the world are those simple things. The law served this purpose quite well. What did it show us? It showed us the simple things of God. His laws. For the Jewish nation, it was the temple, the ceremonial law, the civil law. For the people of God today, it was even those who elect who have not yet been called, who have not called upon the name of Jesus. It's the simple things. The moral law, like the Ten Commandments. Even the rudiments of religion. The simple understanding that shows us our need for a Savior. By showing us our inability to keep even those very simple things. Those elementary principles that we struggle with so much. This word elementary principles could also be translated as spirits. But I think the context is obviously very important here. We're going to see that same word again in verse 9. I think we'll talk more about that next week as meaning spirits. But the important thing here is to understand that before Christ... Our future inheritance was managed and administrated by those very elementary things. Like finishing middle school before starting high school. With the understanding that the purpose that is to prepare you for the things that lie ahead. So that you can properly understand what you have. At a particular time then, we receive that inheritance in full. And that was with the coming of Christ made possible. That brings us to the second part, the coming of the Son. Look with me again, verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. The word picture here, the fullness of time, 
you can almost get the, the picture of like taking a pot and, and turning the water on and filling it in the sink. And it's finally reaching that point of fullness so much so that it's about to spill over. That spilling over represents the fullness of time. There was an appointed time for the coming of Christ, and when that time finally arrived, all the work of Christ was set in order. And one thing that is great about these two verses is they spell out that work so perfectly for us. Someone ever says, so, so tell me about Christ's coming and what he did. You could take them to Galatians 4, 4 and 5, and it would be very helpful for them. There are several things here. First, notice that there was an appointed time. It's not random. It wasn't a reaction to something. God the Father didn't look at the state of history and then decide, well, this is going to probably be the best time for us to go ahead and send Jesus. So let's go ahead and do it now while the getting's good. None of that. He had an appointed time. And when that time came, he sent the son. Like when a child is born. We just had a child born in our church. There was an appointed time. When the fullness of time comes, the child arrives. Next, notice that the Father sent him forth. That he was, the God sent forth his Son. If he was sent forth, then what does that mean? Well, it means that he was already there, ready to be sent, because God the Son had been there from all eternity. He wasn't made to go, he was there ready to go when he would be sent forth. The Son of God is not created, as many believe, namely several uh, cults like Jehovah's Witness and Mormons. They will say that Jesus is, or that the Son of God is a created being. Not at all. It's not what we read here. Rather, He is the eternal Son of God, fully God in many ways, in all ways. There wasn't a time when the Son of God started, so to speak. He didn't start being the Son of God. The Son of God has always been. He will always be. That is a trait of deity. There's another one. This is another, again, one of those clear passages that point to the deity of Christ. But while truly God, he was also truly man because he was born of a woman. There was a time when Jesus, the man, wasn't. He was born of a woman in the fullness of time. Westminster Shorter Catechism does a great job of this. It says, Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary and born of her, yet without sin. It's a great summary of that idea, born of a woman, truly God, yet truly man. And yet, without sin, as the catechism tells us, is an important part here because what does Galatians 4, 4 tell us is that he was born under the law. He was born under the law. And so what does that mean? Well, he needs to fulfill the law. He had to fulfill it. He was born under it and he followed it to the letter. And understand what that means as a Jewish man. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He went to the temple. He went to the feasts. He celebrated the Passover. There was not a single part of the law 
that Jesus didn't follow perfectly. So that after doing so, he was perfect. After following the law, he could redeem those who were unable to. That's you and I. He redeemed those under the law so that they might receive the adoptions as sons and daughters of God. All of this heightens our understanding of the extent of the atonement as well. Understand. Because for whom would God send His only Son? Who was He going to do that for? His children. The ones who would call upon His name and be saved. The ones that He had already written up the adoption papers for. It was just a matter of waiting to the appointed time until they could be adopted as His own. Jesus became not like a son. Understand, Jesus was the Son of God, but He became very much not like a son so that you and I could become sons and daughters of God. Jesus became sin that we might become His righteousness. And all of this happened even while we were yet sinners. That's the incredible part of this. As we read verses 4 and 5, the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. That's us. Why did all of those things happen? Because you and I could not save ourselves. Because He had a people for Himself that He loved from the foundation of the earth, and He had a plan to save them. And that brings us to the third point, the purpose of His calling. Look again at verses 6 and 7. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. The great gift that we get as a result of being children of God is the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the sign of the covenant promise in our lives. Having the Spirit is a sign that we are indeed His. We've been talking about covenant theology a lot on Wednesday evenings. It's been good. And as we'll see, there's always a sign associated with the covenant. Every time there's, a, there's going to be a sign given. We talked about Noah on Wednesday. The sign was the rainbow, right? And those signs convey again and anew for the people the terms of the covenant. The Holy Spirit then in us is both the covenant maker and the covenant sign. That He is our seal, our guarantee that we are indeed a child of God. We see this here, that even He even cries for us, Abba, Father. We read something very similar to this in Romans chapter 8. It's a great summary of what we've been going over in Galatians 3 and 4. Turn with me to Romans 8. We're just going to be looking at a few verses there. I think Romans 8 is a great companion to uh, the book of Galatians. But this bit about the Holy Spirit there in, in Galatians 4, 6, and 7, I think Romans 8, uh, this particular passage in Romans 8, Romans 8 is very good. Look with me at verses 13 through 17. Romans 8, 13 through 17. 
For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. It makes sense. Paul said the Spirit's in us. All who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as son, as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. And what a great summary of what we've just read in Galatians 4. And just as an aside, don't ever take lightly the fact that the Bible reiterates important things to us over and over again. We need a constant review. That's why Paul told the Romans the same thing he told the Galatians, because we need a review. Why do we need a review? Well, look at what he told the Roman church. You did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. We need a review because we regularly think that we are enslaved. And we regularly think that we are, that everything's falling down around us. And so we fall back into fear. Why do we do that? When I ask myself that question concerning my own fears, I oftentimes think of Peter as he was called out to walk on the water with Jesus. It's in Matthew chapter 14. That's where I'll be, I'll be just paraphrasing it. It's a story that's familiar to all of you, I'm sure. Matthew 14. Jesus is walking on the water and they, the disciples see him and Peter says, Lord, if you call to me, I'll come to you. And of course, the Lord calls to him and Peter starts walking out on the water. And for a moment, Peter is walking on the water with Jesus. There's this incredible moment. But then verse 30 of Matthew 14 says, but when he saw the wind, he was afraid. Imagine that. Jesus is right there. And he says, come on, Peter, you can walk on the water too. And, G- and Peter starts looking around. I don't know. And he was afraid. And what did he do? Well, he, he fell. He took his eyes off Jesus. He considered all the other things around him that might hurt him. Even though the creator, the king of kings, was right there in front of him. He was afraid of the wind. And he fell. Brothers and sisters in Christ, remember when Jesus said to the wind, be still, and it listened. Name something that he can't do that for in your own life. You can't. Name a situation in your life that exists that Jesus doesn't have direct power and control over. You're not going to be able to name a situation that would stump him, that would cause him to have to go back to the drawing board and get back with you in a few days. That would cause him to fear. You can't. There are none. So brothers and sisters in Christ, why do we doubt? 
Why do we exchange, exchange the robes of a son for the shackles of slavery? Why do we fall into fear? Why do we trade the spirit of sonship for this spirit of fear? Why do we want to go back and learn the ABCs again when we've graduated according to the gospel? Galatians 4 verse 7 again. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Christians, we are no longer slaves. We are children of God. And if we are his children, we are his heirs. We have been joined to Christ. We have put on Christ and we are now joint heirs with him. The adoption papers are signed. The judge is stamped paid in full so we can rest. And we should rest in him. No longer fear, no longer worry, no longer despair, rather rest in Jesus. For the unbelievers here, understand the dilemma that you're in, but also hear the way out. If you're hearing this and understanding it, perhaps the Lord is already at work in your heart, because that's the way He does things. There are two kinds of people. There are children of God, which we've been talking about today, and then there are children of the world. And the children of the world, he also calls children of wrath. Because the wrath of God rests on them. Understand that. If you're an unbeliever here this morning, you are a sinner in need of salvation. The only difference between you and I is Jesus. He's the one that can save you. Rather then receiving the adoption of sons, if you continue in your unbelief, you'll receive a sentence and it will be an eternity in hell. The answer for you is the same as those that are of us who are in Christ. Rest in Jesus alone. The Bible is clear. To be saved, one must believe that Jesus is Lord and that He has risen from the dead. If you do, call upon His name and be saved. Repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. In conclusion... For a while, the law served as our administrators, brothers and sisters, but now we are children of God. Let us rest in the inheritance that we have, resting in Him, knowing the peace of God that we have for all eternity, not just for today. We indeed have it today, but we have it for all time. But hear this too, this isn't a call to rest from our labors. In fact, it's just the opposite. Because the harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would draw people to himself and that we would be faithful messengers of God preaching the gospel to a lost world. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, forgive us for those times when we slink back into the spirit of slavery. When we put ourselves under fear And we take our robes off and put the shackles back on. Yet you are so faithful. You forgive us each time. You call us back each time. You remind us that we are your sons. Lord, help us. Help us not to walk away from you. And Lord, help us also as we look to a world that is lost. 
that is harassed and is helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Lord, help us to have compassion. And in that compassion that we would share with them the only hope that we have, and it is the hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen. So please stand with me now as we sing our response to God's word.